You're listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today, we are in Campo Felice. How's the park again? How's the park? Uh, I think it's... It's going well at the moment, but uh, we need to be careful because, uh, you know, it was a really hard injury. Uh, I still having the, the injury. I'm, I mean, I'm riding with the, with the injury, so I need to, to, to be really careful. I'm just trying to, to do my best, but, uh, you, know, you know, I need to go day by day and really... You know, be careful. In the mornings, I'm doing uh, physio. I'm doing core. Uh, after the the, the race, uh, it, it's it's hard to to race with with this. But uh, I'm just trying to to do my best, and you know, we'll see. Well, Daniel Bernal's back. He's back. His back. His he's, back, or he's oh, back. Oh, I get it. I get I it. There. His back was uh, well. It was a big topic of conversation in the. In the mix zone this morning, as we heard there. He's very cagey about it, isn't he? But by the end of the stage, we were saying that Bernal is back. Yeah, I've got the joke. Can we labour this anymore? I've got the the joke now. Okay, uh, well, that's a spoiler alert. (laughs) Where Where are we? Where are we, Richard? Which region are we in? Oh, God, no. Uh, Hang on. Um, We're in... um, Probably still in Malise. <laughs> I think we're going to be there the whole oh, Giro. I hope not, because that means we'll have to play that song again, third night in a row. No, well, um, Tuscany. No, we're in <laughs> Abruzzo, um, but I'm going to give further details about our location this evening. We are about ten meters from Checo Mosera. Uh, Francesco Moser. calling him by the name that everybody knows the, him by? The sheriff. Just to be different. The sheriff. Francesco Moser. Checo, the Italian. Okay, story. sorry. Also, Gianni Motta is yeah. there. Gianni Motta won the Giro in 1966, I think. I've not checked that, but I'm pretty sure it's 1966, a, a month or so before um, the you know the event that you so fondly remember, England winning the World Cup. Oh, that's well, that's a low blow. Um, yeah, well, we're in the we are in the in the presence of cycling royalty. Certainly, Moser won the Giro in 84. 1984, allegedly with the help of a helicopter. But that's a whole other but why story. Why are we in their midst? Because we're in a well, we're in a restaurant. Well, they we? just asked us. I mean, there we were <laughs> loitering in our hotel lobby, and and they asked asked us what we were doing for dinner. Would we like to join them? And we said sure, but we've got the podcast comes first. We said, so here we are sitting ten meters away, recording the podcast before I'm sure going and enjoying some nice drinks and some food with Francesco Moser and Gianni Motta. We know a rather unpromising sounding restaurant eating establish eating establishment tonight Bireria, sort of you know uh, a beer ha- tap tap room um, called La Patatina which is the sort of potato chip. Got a good feeling about it though they're very attentive. They um, are. And I wonder how many we speak about this a lot about how big the Giro is how big cycling is um, I'm very struck wherever we go by the, the hype around Pipo Ghana, 
he's really caught people's imagination and not just cycling fans but the, the whole country it seems but how many of these other diners um, know that they are dining in the presence of the cycling podcast <laughs> <laughs> well we've we've noted this haven't we in the last few days that when we go to hotels this year certainly there seems to be less awareness of the Giro than there were, would have been maybe five or ten years ago when we, when we were on the Giro well, shall I crack on? We need to get on with the stage because it was a bit of a belting stage, certainly with a, a cracking finish. A lot, a lot happened. I mean, it was, it was an exciting looking stage on paper. We started in Castel di Sangro, and we will be returning there later in the episode because we went on a bit of a pilgrimage in Castel di Sangro. You'll be hearing about that. It was a 158-kilometer stage to Campo Felice, first proper mountain stage, four classified climbs. The, the profile looked like an upturned saw, um, just up and down all day. There was not a metre of flat, um, with a category, one, a category one climb to finish. Um, and most interestingly, with a 1.8 kilometre uh, gravel section, uh, which in the weather that we had today threatened to be mud. Uh, but we'll, we'll come to that. Stage started with a flurry of attacks, but a bit of a theme of this year has been that either brakes have gone quite easily or they've not gone at all. Nothing was really sticking um, until as they climbed the Paso Godi, around 30 kilometers into the stage, a large group slid off the front. Um, then Danny Martinez of Team Ineos Grenadiers and Damiano Caruso of Bahrain uh, Victorious slipped away. Uh, and that set the alarm bells ringing in the bunch because they're two quite dangerous riders. Um, Danny Martinez is being used as sort of a space probe, isn't he? In these mountain He's stages. He's like that thing they sent up to Mars to uh, the, to the, see Mar- if any, the Mars robot. To see if there's any life you know, <laughs> down the road. The Mars robot was brought back and uh, our friend Gino Mader uh, in the King of the Mountains jersey um, got away in a smaller group and he was first to the summit. Then he and Matty Morhich, his Bahrain Victorious teammate, um, reprised their act of a few days ago when Mader won the stage. Um, Moharic once again doing a great job to help a little group pull clear, including Mader Balkamolama again, um, who was also with them the other day, and Geoffrey Bouchard, who would feature much more later in the stage. On the descent, however, Moharic suffered a terrible crash. It was, it was terrible to watch. Um, he lost control of his bike. It flipped over. He landed on his head, hit the ground very hard indeed. Um, his fork snapped. It's not clear whether that happened in the crash or whether that caused the crash, but Moritz initially got up, he was given a spare bike, and he looked like he was going to carry on, but he was very dazed and sat down uh, before retiring from the race and being taken to hospital in an ambulance. We're just waiting to hear if we have an update on Moritz's condition, but it was was a sickening, sickening crash. Um, Meanwhile, the Peloton, with Bike Exchange and UAE very prominent, were chasing, and it all came back together again. And then a new group began to form, and, and did go clear on an uncategorised climb. That group included Simon Carr, Luis Leon Sanchez, Molima and Bouchard again, Matteo Fabro, Filippo Zana, and eight more then joined them. George Bennett, Tony Gallopin, Ruben Guerrero, Coombe Bowman, Tanel Kanger, Michael Storer and Ina Rubio, who we had in last night's podcast. Once again, Gianni Savio's Androni team had missed out. Uh, but Eduardo Sepulveda made up for that. He bridged across as did Giovanni Visconti. So there won't be the same scenes in the Androni Hotel tonight as there were last night. Ineos were prominent at the front from time to time. And whenever they did appear at the front, they closed the gap quite a lot. The gap was hovering around three minutes, but they were able to get it down to two and a half, two fifteen. 
Uh, and so it wasn't clear whether the brake would stay out or not. As they climbed the Ovindole, the front group was splitting um, as various riders attacked. George Bennett had to go, so did Guerrero, who was pretty active. But it was Carr and Bouchard who eventually went clear. Carr, of course, is the English Frenchman. He's got dual nationality. Spoke to him yesterday morning, and we'll hear from him at some point in the series. An interesting character. Uh, but the Frenchman dropped the Anglo Frenchman, and at one point it looked like Bouchard was heading for the stage win. But then Bauman of Jumbo Visma set off in pursuit, and just before they came to that final gravel section up to the finish there was a, a pretty long ride through a tunnel where we didn't have pictures and we were actually I thought that was quite thrilling waiting for the riders to emerge from the tunnel and seeing what happened in the tunnel I mean will we ever know what happened in the tunnel well, that was where it all went wrong it started to go wrong for Attila uh, Walter or well, we subsequently learned that's what he said at the finish that he was feeling pretty good until that point and I don't think he got he got dropped in the tunnel but just afterwards he certainly was was losing positions when they emerged from the, the tunnel, it was clear that Bauman was going to catch Bouchard. Um, but it was also clear when the, the main group emerged that they had a very good chance as well, although it was by no means certain that they would catch the group. Um, Bauman did catch Bouchard, and uh, they were together, those two. But there was a pretty frantic scramble of race vehicles trying to get past them as the, the bunch, if we can call it a bunch, approached rapidly. And they were led into that gravel section into the final kilometer by Gianni Moscon who did a, a power of work and did a very very good job indeed today for Egan Bernal um, as you say Daniel Walter was dropped really as soon as they started on, on the gravel he looked to be in difficulty um, and meanwhile Bouchard and um, Bauman were, were just hanging on up the front but Alexander Vlasov um, attacked with about 500 meters to go and then Bernal went and he really went he went straight over the top of uh, Vlasov put it in the big ring, um, went past the two leaders as if they were standing. So they, they sort of wobbled as he went past, as if the, 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 the draft had knocked them into each other, bounced off each other. And Bernal, um, really, it was a phenomenal effort from him. He took the stage and the pink jersey, his first ever uh, stage win in a Grand Tour, incredibly, in his third Grand Tour. Um, and one of the surprising performances of the day was Remco Evenepoel, who was at the back of that group as they started that gravel section uh, but did stage a really impressive recovery to finish fourth and we're waiting to hear from James Knox about whether he had a good day or a bad day it's not really clear so Bernal won the stage Giulio Ciccone Ciccone I mean he's really getting into the groove yeah. um, you local know, boy borderline best rider in the in the following pack today Oh, <laughs> I see. God, oh, how many, how many references do you oh, need? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How yeah, many yeah. references? That was two. Well, he'll be looking forward to his holiday in a couple of days. <laughs> he was at seven seconds. Vlasov just behind him and Evan the pole at 10 seconds. Uh, Walter came in at 25th, 49 seconds down. Um, I can't concentrate anymore because I'm desperately trying to think of Madonna, <laughs> Madonna songs. On GC, Bernal leads Evenepoel by 15 seconds, and then we have Vlasov, Ciccone, Well, Ciccone Walter. could be Trek, like a phrase, lucky star at the spot, <laughs> couldn't he? <laughs> Uh, because Nibali rode creditably, well, but it, it depends. I mean, <laughs> the trouble is Nibali is such an experienced rider, such a veteran in the team. There's a danger that he is uh, is a bit too, maybe a bit too preachy with uh, <laughs> with Ciccone. And Ciccone says, Papa, don't preach. Anyway, behind him, Walter, Carthy, Caruso, Martin, Yates and Formolo complete the top ten. Only a minute and one second separate the first ten. Merlier keeps the 
Chiclamino jersey and Bouchard takes over the mountains jersey. Still guessing on fueling, not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter, never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Thanks very much indeed to our new title sponsor, Super Sapiens. Um, we've heard uh, already in this year from the founder, Phil Sutherland, a type 1 diabetic, about how important real-time glucose monitoring is for him, obviously. But it, it's also important and incredibly useful for all athletes, for all people doing sport, um, to help them improve their fueling and to train more effectively. Uh, Super Sapiens is a continuous glucose monitoring system that helps you make the right fueling choices over time the user learns how best to manage their energy resources and it takes the guesswork out of when and what to eat it works by um, well the Abbott Libra sense glucose sport biosensor sticks to the back of the upper arm a thin filament is inserted just under the skin to accurately measure glucose levels and it sends real-time glucose data to the super sapiens app each biosensor patch lasts for 14 days during this Giro, we are running a competition with Super Sapiens, offering three listeners three months each of Super Sapiens for them to uh, try and achieve their cycling goal. It can be anything at all. Um, and we've had a few entries, and uh, keep them coming. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com to enter. We want you to send either an audio or a video message explaining how and why you would use Super Sapiens. In this, uh, in tonight's episode, we're going to hear from Lawrence um, about how he will use Super Sapiens. Hi, dear cycling podcast team. My name is Lawrence. I'm 21 years old. I'm from Munich in Germany, where the weather usually is quite nice in spring, but currently it's been raining all the time. That's why I just got done with a two-hour endurance trainer ride indoors, which was fine, but not as nice as cycling outside, of course. I also just heard about your competition uh, to win a Super Sapiens glucose monitoring device, which I would really, really be interested in because I've been training for ultra-long distance cycling races. And um, obviously, nutrition is one of the most important factors in those. And I think it could really help me train and find out what kind of food I should eat on these really, really long, really hard races and rides. And I've been, I'm looking forward to the rest of your Giro coverage. All the best, cheers, and uh, servus from Munich. Thanks for that, Lawrence, and uh, good luck. And keep the entries coming in. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com. And if you want to find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. On Tuesday, we're doing our press conference episode, our first one of the Giro, uh, on the rest day, and uh, we're looking for questions. We've had quite a lot already, some really great ones, but keep them coming. Send in an audio file or a written question to contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. Daniel, yes. the stage today, you think you enjoyed it? We were all glued to it. Um, I went out the press room and watched it pass, actually, which was fun. Um, and when they went past, I really thought Bouchard a really good chance of another French stage win after yesterday's, of course. Um, but it really did kick off behind him. And it always seemed as if it, really any Oscar and Deers uh, were in charge today and, and in control of things. And 
you know, clearly wanting to set it up for Bernal. Although they said at the finish that actually the plan had been for Moscon to try for the stage win at one point. But you get the sense that Bernal is very keen to uh, push home his advantage wherever he can. And he, and he should be because if Evenepoel is a big danger and we're a long way from Milan, but you want to, he wants to go into that time trial Milan with a, a decent cushion on Evenepoel given the time trialling ability he has and given what an unknown quantity he is. Yeah, um, it's interesting the way Ineos are riding. They're not necessarily riding in the, the style that we associated with Team Sky. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so much latitude given to the, the brakes. Not in terms of time, because they're not necessarily getting sort of 15, 20 minutes. But we've seen the brake go to the finish um, on numerous occasions already. It probably should have done, nearly did today. And Ineos aren't, aren't sort of steamrollering. The, the race sometimes they're hedging their bets a little bit you know you said they're rich they were they were keen to set it up for Moscon today um, that that wouldn't have been the case if you think back to the, the sort of Froome Tours de France or the Wiggins ones or even the Thomas Tour de France or other Grand Tours they've they've won that there is a, there really hasn't been any latitude for for stage wins from other riders so that that reflects a change which we've spoken about heard about all year and then what about the other teams well you know, who, who are the strongest GC contenders? I think Vlasov is definitely one of the top five, but we've heard from Martino Martinelli already this, this week, and he's quite downbeat about how strong his team is. De Koenig Quickstep, to me at the moment, they're still a little bit of a mystery. Um, they're not riding as aggressively as I expected them to. I think they're sort of trying to nurse uh, Remco, Ivanapol. Um, we, got, we got pulled up on our pronunciation of... Even a ball. Um But I think they're sort of trying to nurse him, or they have nursed him successfully through the first week, but they're certainly not in a position where they're not minded to really take the race to the other teams yet. And beyond them, I mean, Bahrain have looked fantastic, but they've been shorn of their... They've been deprived of their leader, um, Mikel Landa, so now they've got various different options, but they're not they're not going to take the race by the, the scruff of the neck. So there's, there's no one really there to do it apart from Ineos. And, and consequently, there is still, or there are definitely going to be opportunities for breaks. What about Trek Segafredo? Because, you know, they've got Ciccone in a very strong position and they've got a very strong team, but they're, they're taking a similar attitude where, you know, Mollema's getting a lot of chances as well. Um, Nibali is clearly not in a position to, to fight for this uh, for, for much in this race the question is do they do they sort of preserve him for a, a, a stage win or do they throw all the resources behind Ciccone because well, that's, a, that's a big decision for them now is it not? He, it is, he made a rare appearance in the mix zone this morning I mean, Nibali, and he said that well he crashed yesterday didn't he and that that really compounded the problems he's faced since the start of the Giro because, as we all know, he broke his wrist a few weeks ago. It looked as though he wasn't going to be able to even take part in the Giro. Made it here um, almost miraculously and then crashed yesterday. And he's, you know, he's not necessarily in the best form, but he's, he's riding pretty well. But uh, I got the sense he was sort of intimating this morning that he, he is willing to sacrifice himself for Chicone. But Chicone is an unknown quantity as far as the general classification is concerned. Is. I think he's an unknown quantity even to himself. The one thing in his favour, there's nothing, you know, there's no big time trial. And it, it's a climbing battle until Milan now. Um, and, and, you know, on the, the terrain that we've got ahead of us, you know, we don't have, until the very last week and the last two or three days, we don't have, you know, three, four 
huge 2,000 meter type uh, mounting stages in a row. And on the sort of medium, the kind of Apennine stages, Ciccone has sort of shown that on his day he can match the best riders in the world. And, and I think he's, he seems to be in the best form of his career. Um, this week so I don't really think he should feel intimidated or inhibited in any in any way I mean I don't expect him to win the race but this is a great first sort of testing ground testing board for him and um, in his sort of rise in his development towards becoming a, a general classification rider he doesn't seem in any doubt about who's the strongest in the race at the moment let's hear what he said after the finish I was there I was in his wheel uh, I tried to, to follow him, but he was really, really strong. Uh, when I saw that he put the 53 in front, I tried to, to keep uh, with, my, with my tempo. And, but uh, for sure he was another level today. And he, I think he's the guy, the best guy that we have here. And uh, for sure uh, we'll be hard to, to, to fight with him in the next day. So Ciccone there remarking on uh, Bernal in particular. And I think Bernal looks better than he did when he won the Tour in 2019. I mean, that, that's not actually saying much because if you cast your minds back to that 29 tour, 2019 Tour, you know, in the Pyrenees, Pino was, was the best climber. And Bernal was always sort of losing handfuls of time. Whereas here, he has looked really sharp, really dynamic. And in the past, I think we've thought of him maybe as a bit of a diesel, um, Quintana-style rider. But actually, he's, uh, I've, I've thought that when, when he's attacked, he's really put the others to the sword. Um, the, one, the one great unknown is still Rem Cuevenepoel, is still very close. And obviously, you know, had, had enough today to limit his losses and, and actually rode that climb really well in the end. But there was some strange... There was a very strange moment in the race today when he went to the front when there there might have been crosswinds. I said there were there were no flat meters. There was there was a sort of plateau and there there might have been a bit of crosswind and and he went to the front uh, followed by Peter Seri, his teammate, as if they were trying to sort of force some splits, some echelons. Um, it was odd to see him taking that on though himself rather than have his team do it because he does have a strong team here. But Jao Almeida, Fausto Masnada often they've been looking around to see where he is and I don't know whether this is just inexperience um, but it's odd and I, I do think that I mean I think Avonapol's such a talent that I don't think three weeks will be a problem to him at all and we could still see a better Avonapol emerge in this race I think He's approach to the last week has been quite uncharacteristic well uncharacteristic we have very limited uh, sort of sample size of you know races and certainly we have no we have no grand tours to go on, but it seems to me that he's made a real effort to reset, readjust, reboot his whole approach to racing this week. I mean, that that might be partly because he's had to. You know, he doesn't have the racing in his legs. He can't he can't remco it in the way that you know he he has done in other races over the past um, year, eighteen months. He can't go from 60 kilometers or 40 kilometers or do things that we were not accustomed to seeing in cycling or had been, hadn't been for many years so you know he's riding within himself and maybe that explains why he's just really ridden like a normal gc contender you know a, a kind of conservative GC, mature gc contender who knows that the third week is the most important and um and and it's going to build towards that but you know we're not sure are we, we, we you know you say there 
based on his talent, he should recover brilliantly. And we keep saying he's going to improve, but um, we don't know. Well, let's hear from his decunning quick step teammate, shall we? James Knox, our audio diarist. Oh, shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, that one hurt quite a lot, to be honest. Um, yeah, lived up to expectations, really, you know, up and down all day. Anticipated a big fight for the break, and uh, I guess our game plan was really to be there from kilometer zero, defending Remco, keeping an eye on uh, particularly Ineos, but you know, also FDJ, Astana, um, Bike Exchange, the other GC teams trying to get guys up the road. And yeah, the fight just went on and on and on, and we had some long, long climbs and tricky downhills. Um, it was, yeah. Splitting on climbs, splitting on descents, breaks going, breaks coming back. <clears throat> yeah, some important moves going. Um, we had all doing our best to, to be alert. I think I think I should probably say that yeah, Masnada saved our saved our asses there a couple of times. Um, he did a really good job covering some of the, the most important moves, I think, yeah. Yeah, but um I took a bit of a kick in, if I'm honest. Um Yeah, um it wasn't too bad in the start, but Obviously, start like that for a good, you know, mad. I don't actually know how long it was, but yeah, it took, went on for a while. Um, sort of took it out of me and then tried to eat and drink and recover and, yeah, line up behind Ineos and stay there, keep the boys protected, but just never, never recovered, to be honest. And just suffering, really suffering. Doubts creeping in, a bit disappointed. Um, not quite at the same level. Yeah, I think I have said it before, but uh, don't feel like I was, you know, a month ago. So frustrating a little bit right now. Um, sort of wanted to be there in the mix right to the end, but um, yeah, it wasn't to be, certainly today. Got popped when Ineos took the pace on that long climb. I uh, just really couldn't hack it. And we had, we had boys there. We had a few lads around Remco as it was. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really have a choice to but call it a day, to be honest. Um, get back to car, get some food and drinks and extra layers on me, and get to line in a bit of a group with, with Elio. So, that was my day. Got a bit caught in a bit of rain, coming to the line, and then, yeah, it was a bit of a, bit of a horrendous... It wasn't even a gravel section. <laughs> it was just loose rocks, muddy... Yeah, it was quite. It was worse than I anticipated. We did we did have a bit of a, a member of staff recon it a couple of days ago, and I, I watched the video. But yeah, it really was quite a quite something. Sort of happy to see none of the GC guys um, punctured or ruined their race. But yeah, I've seen the videos on the finish, and Remco did well, obviously there and thereabouts. Stroud did a great job. Same with him to the to the final. I guess it wasn't exactly the plan for. For Benal to leapfrog him and take the take the jersey, but certainly not a disaster so far. Still right where we could hope to be. Still second place. Still there or thereabouts. Oh, sorry, a lot better than that. Second place, he's doing fantastic. But uh, yeah, I guess I'm struggling to get a bit too upbeat, um, just with own, my own disappointments. But uh, yeah, it's the way she goes sometimes. Um, chin up. Hope it comes around. Um, but yeah, beautiful day through Abruzzo. Really 
nice, nice roads. If it was a training day, it was all a bit frantic and flying around, but yeah, pretty spectacular region. After the race, we came through the the big tunnel through the Grand Sasso tunnel, as they call it. We're down on the coast, but we got to go all the way back in the morning to start in L'Aquila. Bit of a pain. But, uh, yeah, short day tomorrow. Hoping to just get through it and get to the rest day. Hopefully, can recover a bit, come come good. But yeah, yeah, hard day, real hard day. Well, here we are, Daniel, on our much-promised uh, pilgrimage in Castel di Sangro. And we're outside the pizzeria. This is very unnerving for me because I'm being guided by you for once. Usually, it's, it's the other way around. I'm doing everything you say. Um, I'm like your robot for the day. Well, let me, let me take you on a little tour of Castel di Sangro. Daniel, where 25 years ago, Joe McGuinness, the American author, came to live for a year. This was a subject of our Kilometre Zero, of course, the other day. Now, everything in the town happened here. All the footballers ate here in this pizzeria. It was called Marcella's, and Marcella ran the place. It's now called La Lanterna. Why are we going into a pizzeria at lunchtime? Italians don't eat pizza at lunchtime. Because we're going to ask if they remember the great American and slightly crazy author, Joe McGuinness, being here. Let's go in. Who am I looking for? Marcella. Claudio Bonomi. Centro cam campista d'eccellenza, Sampdoria, Castel di Sangro. Fai foto? Ah, sì, sì. Quindi lasciamo... Grazie mille, piacere, piacere mio. Ciao, ciao ragazzi, ciao, ciao. Well, Daniel, that was astonishing. Marcella is no longer there, but you spoke to the proprietor of the pizzeria now, and about five minutes into the conversation, he dropped a bombshell. Well, indeed, Rich, I asked Claudio Bonomi, the pizzaiolo and owner of the pizzeria La Lanterna, if he had any good anecdotes about Joe McGuinness. And he started telling me a story about the game in Bari, the infamous game in Bari. And, um, and I said, oh, well, you must, you obviously went to the games. You went to the away games. You traveled with the team. And he said, what do you mean? I played centre midfield. <laughs> <laughs> and we, established, we then established that Claudio was pretty much... Castel di Sangro's um, star player. Yeah, quite good advert for his pizza now, not being <laughs> unkind, but uh, I, I looked him up and he, he was had long kind of flowing hair. What a sight he must have been to, you know, if you were watching him play, this, I mean, it was it's more than a mane, it was <laughs> it was almost down to his feet. Claudio Canigia style, long straggly hair, and he had, I think he signed mid-season from Sampdoria, I need to look this up, and so he was a, he was a big, exciting signing for the team, so absolutely amazing to bump into him. We're going to send pictures of the town to Nancy Doherty, Joe McGuinness's widow, who we spoke to for the episode Kilometer Zero. But I went on a bit of a pilgrimage around to his old apartment, the hotel McGuinness stayed in. And I must say, my impression of Castle de Sangro um, don't quite mirror the impression from reading the book, where you feel like it's more of a one-horse town. There are a lot of shops, a lot of cafes, bars now, a couple of hotels I noticed, 
and a lot of young people. And we're overlooking it now, aren't we, Rich? Um, let's describe the scene a little bit. Well, there's the hill that's very famous behind the town, the sort of uh, very kind of rounded uh, hillock behind Promontory. the town. And then we're surrounded by, sorry, we're surrounded by the, uh, the Abruzzo Mountains, I guess. Yes, and um, the, the stadium itself is just, well, it's, I think it's slightly south of the, the town centre, probably a kilometre or so from the town centre. And we can see it. We tried to film a little vlog there, but we were chased out. I by... felt like I was Joe McGuinness there, because that's exactly the sort of thing that he encountered. There was a, a degree of protecting the suspicion of us as we went into the, the grounds of the, the stadium and our, our little vehicle council officials they weren't police were they? they followed us in and told us to scarper yes um obviously you know the whole story itself became pretty contentious and you know we heard claudio talking um you know he sort of well he referred to joe mcginnis's book and you know the things that were slightly different in reality from the way that maybe joe guinness um, described them and um, particularly the bari game you know when he revealed to me that he was the center midfielder well, the, star player at, recollections um, of events may differ as the royal family put it well you can confirm this to me i think joe mcginnis writes in his book that um he was at the infamous Bari game and that he stayed, well, he was in the stadium and stayed five minutes and left in disgust. Um, Claudia told me there that as far as he was concerned, Joe McGuinness was on the beach that day. And um, yeah, he didn't go anywhere near the stadium. I'm sure there are some inconsistencies. Uh, but yeah, he was. The, the book ends on a bit of a sour note, um, which is a shame in a way. Um, and as we heard in Column Zero, there's a possibility of it being um, uh, transformed translated to the screen serialized um, serialized or or made into a one-off movie and they may well discard the final chapter there's a big smile on his face when he was talking about joe mcginnis and some fond memories i think and i get the, got the impression that it was very much whatever sort of um disagreements there were and, and also lawsuits um after the publication of the book it, it's all pretty much water under the bridge now and it was a great time for the town, I think, because uh, uh, the folk football club gave the town such a focal point for that one year. And then it disappeared a few years later. It went bust in 2005, the team. And for Claudia, of course, where it had a very uh, lasting, left a very lasting mark on his life because he met his future wife there. Hence why, despite leaving the football team, Castel di Sangro, going on to probably bigger and better things, he returned there post-career and um, took over La Lanterna, and he's now the Pizzaiolo. Well, it was quite poignant, actually, Daniel, walking around Castel di Sangro and seeing where Joe McGuinness uh, had lived. I feel like I've been uh, reliving that season that he spent in Castel di Sangro in 1996-97, having spoken to his widow recently and, and reread the book. Uh, and really kind of, you know, um, I can imagine him in that year being on the, the touchline or the sidelines of the of the matches sort of kicking every ball heading every ball and i, I feel like i've been doing that myself um, and, and so this is coming from someone who you know you, you your relationship with football is a difficult one it's a difficult. pretty it's a frosty one it's been very very close and very distant at various points in my life daniel but this is just a great book a, a really uh, entertainingly written and well-written book and uh, and and i can't recommend it highly enough it's very immersive too you're really there and we, as we heard there in the in the package from Castle de Sangre, we met one of the one of the stars. Well, I was of about to team. say. I mean, as much as I'm looking forward to the cuisine at La Patatina, I, I would have quite liked to stay at La Lanterna in Castel di Sangro and just soak up and just listen to 
old Claudio Bonomi's yarns, particularly about Maradona. He was um, in the same Napoli team as Maradona briefly. He he got around. He played for lots of different clubs. And I I messaged Nancy, um, Joe McGuinness's widow, to tell her that we'd met him. And she says, I remember him as an adorable young man with a cherubic face and golden curls and the skinniest legs I've ever seen. <laughs> Which is, she's got a great memory. I was quite disappointed. I went on YouTube earlier and there's no Claudio Bonomi goals, skills and assists. We didn't score that many goals. I went through his uh, record. He didn't score that many Video. goals. Video, no, to be fair. no. What's but going on, Rich? Great. What's going on over my shoulder? What's, what's Mosaic? What's Checo up to? What's the sheriff well, up to? He was polishing off a huge plate of meat as we came in. Now he's, uh, he's wiping, tearing off the bone he's with his, his <laughs> mouth with his hand. Just tearing off the cow with his. <laughs> yeah, incredible. not quite. But um, he's a very. He was always a very striking-looking rider. I always remember Shelley versus the Seven Eleven Swanier, who worked at the Giro d'Italia in 1985 when it started in Verona, and uh, she encountered Francesco Moser and. He was, she said, a different specimen to the others. Um, he, he was always a, a big kind of muscular rider. And um, uh, she was very, just struck by his physical appearance, his physicality. He's got, he's got enormous hands. I mean, that generation hands. all seemed to have enormous hands. Yeah, um, yeah, that's an interesting observation. <laughs> well, it is. Um, but he's now got this shock of white hair and he looks very, still very striking, very sort of dignified, sort of statesmanlike, doesn't he? Winemaker, of course. I first met Francesco Moser at a football match. Um, in 2001, I spent a weekend with Gilberto Simoni, who, of course, is from the same village as, of course. as Francesco Moser um, in the mountains above uh, Trento. Everyone's listening to this. And when you say that, going, of, co- of course he is. Of um, course he is. Anyway, this was a sort of, the, the whole weekend was kind of organised by Simone's fan club. And he'd ha- he just had a great season. And part of this weekend of festivities was a football match. And... Um, I can remember what well, I interviewed Moser uh, there. That's the end of anecdote. And, <laughs> and, he, and yet, uh, you walk past him and he, he didn't appear to. There was no greeting, <laughs> no. there was no chat. No da- Daniele Fribrancini. There was no warmth. Nothing at all. No. Um, and well. I scoured the list of you know friends, good friends of the podcast, you know, lukewarm friends of the podcast. I didn't see his name anywhere. F. Moser. <laughs> The Cycling Podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to our sponsor, Science in Sport, who've been with us since 2016 at the Giro. And uh, they still offer you, the listener, 25% off all your Science in Sport products at scienceandsport.com when you go to check out enter the code SISCP25 SISCP25 and we are running our Super Sunday competition uh, today was the second one of those uh, you win an £80 bundle of Science and Sport goodies if your name is picked out of the hat a lot of people went for Egan Bernal as in predicting today's winner um, but the name that was picked out of the hat at random was Anne-Marie Meany Anne-Marie Meany Congratulations, you win the energy bundle from Science and Sport. Um, we'll, well, I think Science and Sport will get in touch. Um, Lionel's, Lionel's in charge of administering this. He sent me a message saying, Amory Meany's name was drawn out of the cycling podcast casket in a ceremony resembling a World Cru- Cup draw. 
uh, after immediately after the stage today. So Lionel, put on a World Cup style draw to select your name as the winner. To enter this competition, you can enter now to guess the winner next Sunday. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Now, what have we got now, Daniel? We went on another pilgrimage today, and I should mention, we mentioned the Castle de Sangro pilgrimage. If you haven't caught up with Kilometer Zero, that, of course, refers to Friday's episode of Kilometer Zero, all about the book The Miracle of Castle de Sangro, which included an interview with Joe McGuinness's widow, Nancy Doherty. But we went on another pilgrimage today as well, didn't we? Or its second little detour, um, 40 pista off piste. We've gone this morning. The first one was about football. You'll be glad to, or well, the listeners will be glad to know we're back on topic. We're back on cycling. But where are we? Well, I'm just I'm just relieved there isn't a stage today, and that we're able to go on this little uh, tourist, uh, these little detours. Um, but we're just down the hill in uh, Roca de Pio, is that? Uh, Roca Pia. Roca Pia. And we're in the middle of the Abruzzo, the mountains. We've got um, well snowy peaks all around us, or very green mountains all around us. And we're in a very important spot. X marks the spot, or did once, Rich, because. Someone did once get off their bike here, and I don't know whether he used his finger or, or something, or a twig or a stick, but Costante Girardengo, the first campionissimo, two-time Giro d'Italia winner, I think he won Milan San Remo six times, famously on this spot, um, in front of the Madonna delle Grazie, or is it the Maria delle Grazie church in Roccapia, yeah, got off his bike, and he said, Girardengo stops here. And he drew a cross in the, in the dust on the road. And this has become a very famous moment. But you know what? As is always the case with these things, um, it's been the subject of controversy. Because originally, and I think I might have even writ- written this in a book, and people assumed or reported or said that this happened on another climb, the Macerone, which we went over earlier today. It's a more famous uh, location. But it was actually here in uh, Roccapia. And there's a monument that's going to be brought here. Sadly, it's not here yet. It's coming to mark the 100-year anniversary, isn't it? On the 2nd of June. The most amazing thing about that whole incident is that Girardengo had won the first four stages of that Giro, and this happened on stage five. I think it was Chieti to Napoli, the stage, and that was him. He did stop. He said, you know, Girardengo is not moving from here, and he was was true to his word because that was the end of his Giro. Well, to paraphrase uh, Girardengo... Girovagando continues now. Well, Rich, that's the second time you've threatened to... I don't know whether it was even a threat. I think it was... uh, You announced your decision that you were going to... You were going to stop. You were going to end your Giro um, this afternoon. Oh, I see. With my cross, with your yeah, with your cross. I, I the, wouldn't. I wouldn't have stopped there, Daniel. There wasn't a lot going well, on. The previous occasion was the Emilio Pe- Pepe Winery. You wanted to stop there as well. Um, I'll I'll take the hint one of these days. I'm sure. <laughs> 
Yes, no, no, um, but it was uh, well. It was another uh, little bit of Giro history. You introduced me to there, so that was that was fascinating. There wasn't a lot going on in uh, Rocco Pia, was there? Uh, no, there was not. We were the only people in in the village, I think. Um, Rich today, well, his Giro didn't end. But his stint, his wonderful journey in the pink jersey ended. Um, Attila Valter, and well, we. Listen to a, a long interview that he did with, well, I think, his own press officer this afternoon um, after the finish. And, you know, we we couldn't really be more impressed with Attila, the way he's carried himself. Um, you know, the, the sort of, well, the charisma he's brought to this, well, the, the role that, that a rider has to take on when he's in the pink jersey. All of a sudden, he becomes an ambassador. He becomes an ambassador for his country. He becomes an ambassador for the race, his team. And at 22 years of age... Um, he um, he has done that with some aplomb, and he's still fifth on general classification. Yeah, it was a coming of age performance by him, and uh, it's going to be interesting. He's, he's very determined, isn't he, to kind of capitalise on the momentum that he's built up here. And um, he's he's down to fifth overall. If he can finish in the top ten in this Giro, that's that's a that's a big ask, really. But that would be a great kind of foundation stone for his future career slightly uh, concerned slightly concerned by the fact that well I mentioned last night that Julian Pino his coach um, he he has become accustomed to or he started sending me pictures of cannoli the Sicilian desserts that he comes across and um, today instead of concentrating on his protégés you know defense of the pink jersey he was he was in triumphant mood because he sent me a picture of these chocolate cannoli that he discovered somewhere in Abruzzo. <laughs> I'm not sure how much he was concentrating on well, Attila's Watts and his, you know, physiological data. It's he was still a goal um, of ours to get him on the podcast. I think we to will. talk about we Attila, will. but also talk about his brother Thibaut and how yes. he's getting on because yes. we're, we we want to know, don't we, how he's getting on? Yes, we should. Well, it's a sensitive subject, as we know, at um, Groupama. Um, and Julien, I think um, he's sometimes he's quite reticent to talk about it because, as he said to me recently, it, it's it's like state business when anyone talks about um, Thibaut Pino. He's a sort of national treasure, and you know he has to go through all sorts of different channels and ask for all sorts of different kinds of permission. His brother, for before goodness he speaks sake. about his brother, um, Rich. Yeah, not um, forget cannoli. Let, but let's continue to talk about food. Last night, um, we we were in a lovely restaurant in Molise, didn't we? And Mol we went, we've been talking about this, this La Molisana, this brand of pasta. You know, we got a lovely gift pack the other day. Molise is famous for its pasta. Um, I had a lovely spaghetti, spaghetto, they called it in sort of a broccoli sauce last night. That was very enjoyable. But tonight we're in Abruzzo. I had my favourite pasta, the orecchietti. Yes, you which did. Which is lovely. And... Uh, I was Although not very typical of Molise, it's more oh, sorry from about Puglia. That. It's very tasty though, very, very tasty. <laughs> and tonight, I'm just looking at the menu here. Um, so in Abruzzo, they always talk about um, spaghetti alla chitarra, spaghetti, uh, the guitar spaghetti. And the guitar is the machine they use to cut the pasta. Um, and there's a lot of it here, chitarra, there's a chitarra with saffron, gorgonzola and porcini. But they're very, this is going to shock you, um, the Italians being prescriptive about food, but I'm reliably informed that, that the spaghetti has to be exactly two millimetres wide when it's made, when it's cut by the chitarra. Wow. Well, I'm going to measure it when I get a plate of that, just to it's, check that they're, they're, they're conforming de to the designed, rules. designed, cut, tailored, conceived for maximum porosity, so the sauce 
sticks to and you know um, sort of amalg uh, amalgamates the around the, the the antipasti is worth mentioning from last night as well, isn't it? Yes, it was fantastic. It arrived sizzling on a oh the scamorta, yeah. Um, figs and uh, we left it on a little a little bit too long and it and it burnt a bit underneath but it was still very tasty. Um, Daniel, you spoke to Peo Bilbao this morning as well. Peo Bilbao. To, just to change the subject back. Yeah, very, very radically. Controversially. Yeah. Um, Bahrain victorious. I mean, we've been struck by how strong they've been um, in this first week, but they've had a lot of misfortune as well. Mikel Lander crashing out. Mikel Lander, of course, a very good friend of Peo Bilbao's, a fellow Basque. Um, and Peo this morning was sit sitting, or well, I think it was about two minutes down on general classification. Still sort of on the fringes of the mix. Had a bit of, it had a few problems on the final climb yesterday. And um, yeah, I was curious to know really how Bahrain are going to play these different cars they have. They've got Gino Maydard, and they've got Peyo, and they've also got um, Caruso, who is riding high on general classification. So anyway, he was Peyo this morning. Uh, Peyo, it's a few days now since Mikel crashed, but I know you two are great friends. Just tell me, well, what, what your emotions were that day? Uh, it's been a hard day, no, for me and also for all the team because uh, just the day before we had such good feelings with all the team working in the front, uh, controlling the, the final part of the race, Mikel feeling strong, really confident, attacking and when you see the team and the leader in such a good situation it's like uh, we were uh, expecting great things here no? and just the next day it was very disappointing now to see how the leader goes home with a very dangerous uh, crash no could be also worse but in the end okay three ribs and uh, and the collarbone and we hope that uh, it's gonna be a fast recovery for him and you've been riding well i know you had a bit of a problem on the in the finale yesterday but what are you thinking about your own race now because the team has so many options with gino and caruso and you what it, what's the plan yeah, I think uh, now our problem is to manage the team, no? Because we have a really strong team and a lot of objectives, no? Possible objectives. So maybe uh, now it's the time to to concrete a bit more, which are the the best options for us. Maybe also for me, no? Because uh, in this moment I lost quite a lot of time for the GC. So maybe I, it's better for me to concentrate in other objectives. Last year you did the Tour and then the Giro straight afterwards. Um, what was the legacy of that? Did you, I mean, do you think that that's made you a stronger rider? Or do you think that it took you a long time to recover from those six weeks? No, I think that experience made me a stronger rider for sure, no? And demonstrate myself that I can do two Grand Tours in a row. Uh, I was just two days at home, no, I think, uh, because uh, after the tour I went straight to the world. So mentally, the most difficult was the, the mental factor. But uh, I had a really great motivation, not big stress because uh, the main goals were on the tour. So I came to the Giro with not big uh, responsibility or big stress and with a really uh, nice team around that they protect me and uh, they motivate me every day 
So the experience has been really nice and I demonstrate myself that if the head is concentrated and motivated in the race, the body can achieve anything. No, we always can give more than we think and that was a good demonstration for me. So this year I also have the the intention to do Giro and after the Tour. Well, the other great talking point from yesterday, Daniel, was the inquest and Droni Giacattoli um, and Gianni Savio's dark mood. Uh, what was, uh, you? I think you spoke to one of his riders this morning, was he looking shaken, ashen-faced after the dressing down from Gianni well, we'll, Savio? Well, we'll hear a bit about As that. White unfortunately, as hair. unfortunately, I didn't see uh, Gianni this morning, but of course, in the stage, I mean, when we got into the car and turned on the race, we were aghast to discover that Gianni um, Gianni's Androni boys had missed a break again. Unthinkable. That's a sort of four in four o'clock in the afternoon cappuccino, isn't it? Missing the break twice. Um, and then finally, fortunately, I guess probably sheepishly, um, Sepulveda tried and, and well, tried very gamely and did finally make it across to the break. I don't know how much energy... Or how he, did, he didn't jump in a car to well, do so. Oh, yeah, of course, famously, he was kicked out <laughs> of the Tour de France for doing just that a couple of years ago, a few years ago. Um, but he did make it across to the break. Um, as I say, it, it proved fruitless in the sense I don't think he had much energy left. But I was very curious to meet and find a little bit more about Tesfacion because they signed him from the NTT, um, so the Quebecer continental team and con Quebec were very sad to see him go I think they would have liked to keep him but he's performed very well so far this year he was extremely good at the Settimana Copia Bartali a few weeks ago hasn't necessarily been that prominent so far in the Giro but he's very young 21 years of age and he he was interesting he was talking to our friends from Bidon the Italian podcast the official Giro podcast um he's a very devout Christian um you know, they were, they sort of asked him what he was reading on the Giro and he said the Bible and he said not only does he think about it when he's reading it at night, he thinks about it all day in the stage. But unfortunately, yesterday he wasn't in the break, like all of his teammates, and today, as we just said, at first they also missed it. So, I was, you know, we heard last night, or well, Gianni told me that he was going to give his team and his director sportifs a dressing down. A rollicking. Yeah yesterday evening so i was curious to find out exactly what that entailed that now yesterday Gianni at the finish wasn't very happy because no one none of the androni riders were in and the break what happened yesterday how why did you guys yeah, miss the break yesterday was too much difficult to break away because all team needed to break away but also me i give all my best i attack too much times but in the first climb i finish i drop and after I catch, but uh, yeah, he's angry when one rider from Androni for sure top 10 in front. It's difficult to imagine Gianni Savio angry. Usually we see him and he's smiling and he's shaking hands, but what's he like when he's angry? Yeah, because in the meeting uh, he, he say uh, one rider to break away, but uh, everyone uh, was trying to break away, but uh, in the distance uh, it's difficult because 57 kilo. Uh, I don't know how can I go in breakout. You say you don't speak Italian, but do you understand it when Gianni says every morning cattivi e determinati? No, no, because uh, in my language, some words is Italian, 
sometimes uh, a little bit understand, but sometimes uh, Giovanni and Elena transfer for me. So cattivi e determinati, you know what that is, because Gianni says every day, I think. I, I know for Gianni, compliment and bene così. Yeah, hang on, sorry. Yeah, Francesco, yeah. Yeah, we'll be there in a second. We're just finishing off here. We're just finishing off recording the the, the, the cycling podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, the cyclingpodcast.com. Okay. Um Francesco's getting a bit a bit edgy. Um Danny wants us to go and join him for dessert, I think. So we better wrap things up here. Um thanks very much. Has well, it been uh, have we learned a lot today at the Giro, do you think? Um, well, we learned a lot about Casa di Sangro. That was nice. I enjoyed our little stop in um, Rocca Pia as well. Um, do you know what? There's a correction. I always get something wrong every single night, pretty much. Usually more than one thing. Last night I said that the there was this confusion about the Espressino coffee and the Caffè Triestino. And I said that in Trieste, what, what in Puglia is known as a espressino in trieste they call it a capo in b it's not a capo in b it's a cap in b cap in b no no o richard not a cardi b which you were offered once in 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 east london (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. that's another story yeah that's all i think that's all for corrections i'm just just looking down my notes to see if i got anything else wrong did you one one thing well one thing i did i did make a note of that i wanted to mention did you did you notice that today rocca di cambio where the press room was so just before the finish line it was um, it's twinned with Sasfe in Switzerland. Sasfe, whenever I see that place name and think of Sasfe, the ski resort, very f- fancy plush ski resort, um, I always think of Wham last Christmas because it was filmed there. Well, well, let's sing out with that, shall we? <laughs> let's yeah, not. Obviously. Let's not. Um, well, listen. Let, let's let's end it there. Tomorrow's a nice short flat stage, late start. Um, thanks very much for all your feedback so far on our Giro coverage. Um, we were up to third in the iTunes chart today. Is that good? Uh, for s- sports podcasts in the UK, which is excellent. I think our best result outside the Tour de France. So thanks very much for listening, and thanks very much for all your feedback. If you want to leave us a review at iTunes, that would be most welcome. And, um, yes, keep the feedback coming. We really enjoy hearing it. Lionel's manning the, the emails and forwarding on all the nice ones. And... Uh, keeping all the the nasty ones for himself which is great so we're only getting nice positive feedback i'm sure that's all we're getting full stop anyway we'll be back tomorrow night we've got common zero coming tomorrow morning hopefully fingers crossed um but no it's coming it's, it's coming. coming it's gonna be called la prima donna la prima donna that's coming tomorrow thanks very much daniel let's go and join francesco